welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia, and I have an amazing guest on. I'm really excited. This is going to be a pretty unique episode. Um, can you first introduce yourself? Hi, um, I'm Tarit. Um, I'm excited to be here today. Uh, today we'll be talking about science in the Arab world, maybe queer science of some sorts, but yeah. I love, I just already love the sound of queer science. I don't know. Um, yeah, I... I I know that our podcast often focuses on the arts, and so it's just, it'll be really cool to have, like, a STEM-focused um, episode. So, yeah, uh, can you give a little background about yourself, just, you know, whatever you're comfortable sharing, like, maybe where you grew up, um, your, just anything else about your upbringing, your background? Yeah, um, so I'm Lebanese. I grew up um, in the UAE. Um, and then I moved to the U.S. eight years ago. I um, studied in Boston, and now I'm in New York. I currently work in research, and I'm also getting my Ph.D. Ooh. Awesome. Um, can you talk a little bit about your research? Like, what what's the focus? Yeah, so it's yeah. not queer, but it affects queer people, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, I basically, um, I study uh, the relationship of cholesterol its metabolism its production its distribution in the body to heart and fatty liver diseases wow so oh, and wow. obviously as you know in the arab world a lot of people have high blood cholesterol so it's nice to have um yeah research you know that's funded to figure that out yeah definitely um what are some of the like causes that you think um make it so prevalent in the region right i think okay. um okay. the the umbrella term for the field is uh, metabolic disorders and i yeah. think um obviously there there is like controversy when it comes to metabolic disorders because a lot of it is mm -hmm. environmentally um uh you know induced like the stimuli yeah. that promotes the onset of a metabolic disease could be like you know diet lifestyle choices um which, you know, it has been um, uh, uh, challenged before. It's not just diet or just, you know, your lifestyle choice. There's genetic aspects, molecular aspects to yeah. how one could be at risk for a metabolic disorder. But for the most part, at least what I study, um, a lot of it does have to do with uh, maybe lack of mobility or, mm -hmm. or uh, certain uh, um, dietary, um, you know, choices. We, even though the Mediterranean slash Middle Eastern diet is considered pretty much um, uh, a well-balanced um, uh, uh, nutritious diet. I, I would yeah. say um, uh, we consume a lot of oil. Yeah. So, and olive oil is, it, yeah. it's, a, it's a healthier alternative, but it's still an oil, so. Um, but yeah, so I think there, there are certain aspects. There's obviously a, a genetic aspect too that um, is very interesting. One that I'm interested in studying further too um that you know can't be explained solely by you know environmental stimuli so yeah i guess dipping bread straight into oil can build, <laughs> right. build up <laughs> over time yeah, like pouring, pouring a bunch of oil on your lebney doesn't make your lebney healthy anymore, so. <laughs> yeah <laughs> like literally put a bowl of oil in front of you and dip bread in it anyway um yeah that's that's awesome i'm do you want to yeah do you want to share like Kind of what led you to become interested oh ellie's joining she okay hey uh ellie just joined just so you know um 
we're talking about Tariq's current research and um, I'm going to, do you want to share like what kind of led you to become interested in this field and particularly this focus? Right. So a lot of times people are, you know, have some passionate statement slash experience that led them to this. For me, um, I was finishing up undergrad. Um, med school didn't work out and I was looking for a job and I wanted to move to New York and I found a job as a research assistant in the field. So <laughs> I just happened to end up in the field and I liked it. And I, I thought um, once I started my PhD, it probably would be easier for me to stay in that field and not venture out um, and just, you know, expand and build upon what I already know. Um, so hence why I've, I've stayed there. There's no like real reason or, or, you know, thing that's been driving me or why, you know, there's such a high prevalence and incidence of metabolic disorders in the Middle East that, that, that didn't, I mean, it matters, but it didn't matter to me as much. I just happened to fall into the field and the job and yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I like when things kind of happen in that order where you just kind of find yourself somewhere and you realize, oh, this makes sense for me. Um, no, I just wanted to say that it's kind of refreshing to hear that somebody got into a field, you know, like that, because a lot of people like start off with, oh, that's just, that's my passion. That's my thing. And, you know, sometimes you do, you do just fall into things you like to do. Yeah. And, Wasn't that, don't you kind of relate to that, Ellie? Yeah. I mean, I like advocacy and I like law, but tech is where my heart is and that's where I landed. It's cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Yeah. Okay. We have some good STEM presence here. We have tech. We have science. Um, yeah. It's great. Cool. So, yeah. What's what was it? So, when you were in the UAE, did you were you already studying um, anything related to what your research is now? I was in high school, so oh, I uh, okay. was definitely. <laughs> oh, okay. Got it. Okay. I was required to take. So, um, yeah. yeah, Lebanon and the UAE. I wasn't really. Uh, necessarily um, a science guy, but I was taking the science classes because um, I, 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 I thought I would yeah. be on a like a pre-med trajectory and um, as do yeah. many people who first, you know, go into the sciences. Yeah. Um, and I feel like unfortunately in the region, like you don't, you're not really, maybe even here, I feel um, you're not really exposed to what, you know, a career in science could entail beyond you know, practicing medicine, being a physician, you know, their research is, yeah. if, if not the majority of the science and medicine that we're practicing today comes from research. So I think I, I just, I had no idea what that meant um, growing up. And it wasn't until I started undergrad here in the US, you know, like a year in like, oh, like <laughs> labs are actually a thing and yeah. you, you can work in labs and your work is meaningful and not, you know, just a fun experiment. And, um, and it started there, um, but I, but I, uh, to the point of how I just ended up in the field. Um, I mean, I think it, it could be, you know, from my past of of being the annoying pre med kid. Now, now I just I think of my research as work, and and I think that's a very important thing. Where I think it, I think of it purely as work. Where a lot of times, if you're in the in the field, sometimes the research consumes you, and it's all you think about, all you want to work on, and it's not healthy and i think I'm, I'm a big fan of um smart work not hard work where you know yeah. you can still do very impactful research but not you know spend 80 hour weeks and all your weekends 
in the lab because you like it like you can like it and still leave at five so that's why i treat this as a job honestly i appreciate that i think yeah there's this like misconception that passion equals like um just zealous devotion yeah well and like giving sacrifice like passion has to equal like sacrifice of even your basic needs like sleep um so yeah i like that approach and that attitude um yeah i mean yeah i mean i don't think anyone's saying hey if you don't sleep under your lab desk you're not a good scientist yeah at least i hope not i hope not (laughs) yeah some people do say some the the it can be there are certain environments that can be very toxic especially at institutions that are pretty well funded and have a lot of labs and are competitive a lot a lot of a lot of PIs, uh, uh, aka principal investigators who run these labs, um, uphold you know these stereotypes where it, it really is a toxic environment. So, but the nice yeah. thing is you also have the freedom to choose where you want to end up in. Um, like in a PhD program, you get to rotate in different labs. So I'm in a very, very like healthy environment, but still very productive, which is great. A lot of times people aren't there. They, <laughs> they definitely yeah. are in an environment where it's toxic and the PI is expecting too much. Um, Okay, since you brought up uh, lab toxicity, I can't help but ask, uh, what are your feelings on the whole publisher parish culture, in academia at least? Oh, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not—I haven't heard that phrase before. But does that mean like if you don't publish, your your research doesn't mean anything, or or or? or can you it's, know what that means? Sorry. Oh, um, so at least in American academia and in some commercials, like um, corporate settings. If you do not publish a paper in a prestigious uh, journal every so often, you're not considered relevant and you don't get promoted, that sort of thing. And for academics can also mean tenure issues. Yeah, no, um, are you, are, are any of you familiar with what an impact factor is? Um, a lot of journals, at least in, the, in STEM, um, journals have impact factors and they're just mm-hmm. numbers that basically it's a, it's a quantifiable method of, of ranking what, how a journal how impactful a journal is, and it's based on amount of reads, downloads, you know, citations, etc. Um, and a lot of times, PIs refuse to publish in journals that don't have high impact factors. And then there's been dispute about how, why would that matter? You want this to be publicly available. You know, an impact factor shouldn't, you know, make or break the reputation of a journal. And I and I hate to be this person, but I see both sides in the sense that at least in STEM. Um, reproducible <laughs> data and, and rigorous data matters. And a lot of times that could be compromised if a journal isn't as cautious with the peer review process. And mm-hmm. a lot of times hand in hand, like a, a journal's impact factor can correlate with its peer review process and how, you know, how um, ethical and strict they are in, in reviewing the data and making sure that the data is not just makes sense, but also like is like, you have access to the raw files and, and and things that make sure that the data is legit, basically. And I think that helps with the impact factor. But I don't think, you know, publishing in a top-notch influential journal is should dictate your career because there are journals that have like mid-tier impact factors that still have really rigorous and 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 um, uh, you know, uh, and at least I would trust their peer review process. But then you know, a journal that would accept your paper after one submission process not even go through a revision and go like oh yeah that's good we'll publish it like i don't know challenge 
our hypothesis and our our data a bit to make sure that you know it it can be challenged um but yeah does that make sense where it yeah. sucks that there is this ranking system but in a way the ranking system does help weed out the journals that maybe don't even review a, a paper properly and then you get fraud and and mm -hmm. legal trials that yeah. don't work out and and you know and be rich benefactors being upset and and then yeah. politicians wanting to stop funding research and i don't know yeah i mean we could i could go down this rabbit hole all day to be honest but uh yeah sorry i i I, I hear I get a lot of that in my real life people talking about that so it's kind of like ah, journals and corruption okay sorry not you but do you get that though do you get that yeah 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 you know Completely. like the system serves yeah. a purpose but it's it also has a lot of toxic uh, side traits is the issue for sure yeah. yeah I hear what you're saying though Tarek like there needs to be a lot of fact checking in in some manner um but anyway Ellie, don't you have quite a few people in your family who do medical research? Uh, yeah, no, yeah. or at least play some part of it. Um, yeah, that's that, full disclosure. Yeah, that's how I know about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you seem like you have very pointed questions, <laughs> like really specific um, firsthand knowledge. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I would love to hear how you're Kind of like adjustment was you know moving from the uae to new york what what was that like making that move especially at that age yeah um so it was uae to boston first and to be honest sorry um, that's what i meant <laughs> well you're totally fine yeah. um it's like a love-hate relationship in the sense that i'm not from the uae i'm lebanese and right. you are probably familiar the levantine diaspora in the gulf is, is huge yeah. and it's because they're the economic prospects they just they outweigh <laughs> being able to live in your you know in your in your homeland um yeah. and, and it was a you know it's it definitely is a, it's, a, it's a bubble of a, of a society there and right. moving to boston was a big culture shock and i was i was very young i was 17 when i moved here and i don't have family in the u.s um like extended family but yeah. i don't know um so it, it definitely was yeah. an adjustment um i think today versus eight years ago, I'm a very different person. And I think that's okay. Like that happens. It's good to change. I would hope to not be the same person I was eight, eight years ago as a 17 year old. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it was definitely an adjustment. Um, and I think in terms of like, be like, being in science and medicine wasn't much of an adjustment, because I was going in with that, you know, mindset, like to do something of, of the sorts. But I think personally, it definitely was a bigger adjustment in the sense that that's when I started exploring maybe, you know, changes or, or, or in with sexuality or sexual preferences or, yeah. you know, identity. And um, I think it was, mm. it was a great place, at least because I was alone, a great place to explore that and, and be able to take the risks. And, and, you know, I'm definitely grateful that I'm, I was able to safely at least. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it was an adjustment, but I think when I moved to New York, and I had, um, you know, uh, more stability in my life, financial independence. I thought, okay, you know what? Now I'm going to go all out. So um, yeah. definitely, I think New York uh, 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 not just changed, but um, it, like developed who I am as a person um, much more mm -hmm. um, than Boston. And I think Boston's because I 
uh, I, I went there for a certain purpose, whereas New York's like, okay, I'll go there and hopefully get a job and figure out, yeah. you know, who I am, etc. And, and yeah. New York does tend to be a place that, and same here, I, it was just like, the, the location was the draw. It was just like, okay, then everything else I'll figure out. Um, so, yeah, that's, yeah. that's great. Um, yeah, and before we started, I think it was before we started recording, you were, you mentioned like you might get into the topic of what we can call queer science. <laughs> can you explain kind of what you meant by that? Like, were you talking like, was it like self-describing or, or is your research, do you think your research is going to kind of focus on any queer populations and um, the impact specifically on specific, you know, queer communities in, in any way? Right. I think um, my, um, how I'm hoping to introduce queer Arab science um, is more through a historic lens. I feel like we see that with art too, where, yeah. you know, um, centuries ago, the Arab world was a very uh, 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 complex, diverse place. Um, and I think it, it was a great thing in the sense that it allowed for many different identities to shift and form and, 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 you know, um, and be. So um, I, I was going to talk about science in the Arab world that could be queer or queer adjacent um, from like the eighth to the 16th centuries. Uh, modern day science, yeah. I feel like it's hard. We have, um, I, I do want to say there is Arab representation in science and academia. It doesn't lack, maybe there just isn't much, but there is. Um, uh, there are even like Nobel laureates um, who are of Arab or Middle Eastern descent, even someone from 2021, who's a Lebanese Armenian. Um, nice. He uh, won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine um, nice. for the discovery of receptors that are responsible for your sense of touch, which is really cool, right? A very oh. simple thing that is super important and imperative to human functioning. Um, but our modern, modern day Arab scientists necessarily queer we don't know <laughs> it's hard um and i think even as a modern day queer Arab scientist in training if i am you know if i do meet or encounter other arabs who are in science a lot of times they aren't queer um i think maybe it's changing um uh, but maybe on my level i don't think there are investigators you know people who run labs and departments and divisions who are openly queer and arab I was gonna say openly Arab, but you're you're Arab. You're officially <laughs> Arab, so um, so I think that in the sense there's not much, um, and I think a lot of times I think you were mentioning this to Alia um, earlier that um, which is a great thing, but it is hard because a lot of times the Arabs who are queer or identify within this umbrella often end up in the arts or humanities or or maybe in a field where they're able to at least have, have the um, freedom to express themselves maybe in a way that isn't necessarily um, uh, encouraged in like a more structured setting, like in the lab, you know, where <laughs> focus on your research, you don't have to, you know, <laughs> have a rainbow flag on your desk, which people do, but you know, it's, it's, it's probably easy, not, I don't want to say easier, but it's, it, it's more common, I would say, to find queer Arabs in art um, or, or fields similar um, or that fall within that. Um, I mean, that's very much playing into the stereotype, I guess. But yeah, I also does. noticed, yeah. yeah. But I also noticed that um, 
I also see a lot of uh, queer Arabs in the social sciences, studying populations and groups and doing surveys, yeah. which is needed. You know, right. it basically demonstrates we're here, but um, but science is also necessary because well, circling back to the me metabolic research, you know, um, it just certain populations are more disparately uh, impacted and who knows in the future what the impact of whatever your research leads you to will be on specifically queer Arabs. Right. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of queer Arabs and potentially queer Arab scientists, I thought I would just go over some um, significant contributions to science um, in, in the olden days between the 8th to 16th centuries um, in what is today's Arab world. So a lot of it, um, if anyone has um, Iraqi lineage, um, a lot of it does um, come from Iraq or Baghdad in particular, but obviously there are other parts of the Arab world that are contributors, but in general, Baghdad during that time was a big, you know, contributor to the sciences, math, engineering, you name it. Um, so, okay, let's start with Abu Haytham. Um, Ibn al-Haytham, not Abu Haytham. Ibn al-Haytham uh, was a notable scientist in the Islamic Golden Age. Um, and uh, he is responsible for being one of the founders of the field of optics because he discovered the laws of refraction. Was Ibn Haytham queer? We don't know because he never said he was explicitly straight. So it's, we can challenge that. I mean, um, we're going to run into that whole issue with everyone here because modern queer identity is probably much different from of course, yes. a century. Yeah. But. However, there are some things that make me think that they could be. So then in the 13th century, there was a Persian astronomer, uh, Nasreddin al-Tusi, based in Baghdad, for uh, creating a, a planetary model that can still be applied to today to how planets are, are shaped and formed and how they exist in, in up there. I hate to interrupt the list, but you, 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 you tease me with this. How? What were your clues? Tell us, detective, investigator. Clues of, of thinking why they're queer? Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll get to the fourth person that I'm getting to. Um, okay, my apologies. Why. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the third person who, you know, it, is re relatable to maybe what I do was in medical research. So Muhammad ibn Zakaria al-Razi, um, in the ninth century, um, in Latin known as, as Razis or Razes or whatever. So there is documentation of, of this person. Um, and um, he was involved in documenting some of the first cases of smallpox and measles and explaining how they can be contagious. Um, and because of that is considered one of the greatest, you know, historic uh, um, uh, infectious disease scientists of, of, in the world, um, who's based in the Middle East. Number four, we have Abu Nawas. Abu Nawas was a poet, so it wasn't in science, but Abu Nawas was around that era. Um, and Abu Nawas, I, I don't know if he was like sentenced to, to death or, or something of the sorts, but he was definitely imprisoned for some views that he had that maybe didn't align with people um, around the time that he was 
you know, being a poet. It, it was during the Abbasid Caliphate. And he wrote about having fun with, quote unquote, boys and girls. So this was ancient historic poet around the same time as these ancient scientists, contributors to science. And because his work meant that he could put things in, in words about how he's personally feeling, you know, make that into a poem. We now have, you know, somewhat proof of him explaining that, okay, I like whatever, you know, scientists don't, they focus on their work, but my theory is that they probably could have like boys and girls or whatever. So that, that's all I have on Arab scientists who could be queer, but it's because there was less of a structure to how you were supposed to identify or exist, at least during that time. I think that happened a little later. Yeah. Um, but of course, it can be challenged. They they could not be queer, but I, I would imagine that if they're that they could be they're not mutually exclusive <laughs> i feel like statistically it's unlikely all the people you've mentioned are straight completely straight so right. I, i'm with you on that <laughs> right. yeah but it's sad awesome. though i i do have to say it's sad that there isn't you know um physical documentation or proof of historic queer and arab figures in science that doesn't it yeah. frankly it doesn't exist and i know a big um I think it was on your website, queer Arabs, we exist. We do, mm -hmm. but there's just not, you know, documentation on the, um, you know, the the combination of both being queer and also being influential in a, in a field, whether it be science, tech, you know, et cetera. You know, this weirdly circles right back to publisher parish, because if you don't have anything surviving your existence, um, right. you yeah. die the uh, sad second death where no one speaks your name again. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why like things like archives and having, you know, um, like e-journals, like these are great things. These are a way to preserve not just like foundational science that we can use and apply in medicine and other aspects, but also like, you know, figures that could relate to people and could influence people, um, make people feel more comfortable with like their identities so um but you're right if it publisher perish and it could have been that ibn haytham was you know too busy in the field of optics um he forgot to publish his memoir of, of being you know a, um a, a queer optical scientist <laughs> and all his great loves exactly yeah right yeah and this is this is just a reminder i don't know at least for me like how important it is for our generation to leave something um yeah, because, yeah, it it really does make a difference, like just having even historic figures to aspire to, um, you know, kind of kind of carry on their work. And like if you're not seeing any part of yourself in in them, it's it's kind of hard to imagine yourself. Um, like Plus a lot of their work. Yeah. Yeah. Plus a lot of um, like historical stereotypes like the sassy gay man, you know, come from these historical figures like Oscar, Oscar Wilde being the big obvious one. You know, right. I mean, who's yeah. who's who's my where's where's my historical role model and stereotype to fall into? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of times I feel like um, maybe with our families or the situation we're in, 
like we're told to keep things to ourselves um like oh maybe you can exist you know and and be queer and and whatever but keep it to yourself and a lot of times if you're not sharing these things um it's hard for future generations to not just share these things but also to exist as queer so i think it's definitely it's nice to have some form of exposure or or yeah. or any form of uh, media documentation whatever it is that you can relate to that can make you feel like okay no this is good this is this makes sense and it it, it feels right and it is right so yeah yeah that kind of relates to like my i get really frustrated when people talk about pride and they're you know and they're like you know why why does pride have to be so boisterous and you know people people can just be and it's like no it's it's not that simple. There's a reason for having to be loud because like when you've been suppressed for generations, you eventually have to go the like swing the pendulum the other way in order to get people to hear like no, we're here and we don't have to be ashamed. Like we we're not required to be ashamed of this big part of ourselves. Cool. Um yeah. And another thing I want to mention, you know, specific to like research on metabolic, uh, this is separate from like the queer aspect, but at least in my family, in the, my parents' generation, there's been a lot of like shame and just not, not being, not feeling like open about talking about even physical um, ailments. I don't know if that's something you've seen like in your family, but like, so my family is uh, from Saudi Arabia. My um, father, he, you know, when he passed away, like, afterwards, we learned that he had all these, like, he had, like, he was diabetic, and he never was open about it, and um, just some other things that have to do with, you know, I think very similar, very closely related to the research that you're doing and he wasn't either willing to confront those things himself or share that with others um so i feel like even just the um the queer part aside like having more publications pertaining to like culturally relevant um i don't know populations within the swana region relating to effects of various metabolic diseases and the factors that are present environmentally and you know culturally and stuff i think that's like that is extremely important um yeah just just anything to get people to talk more openly and maybe be willing to seek help a little more um Right. Yeah. I don't know if that's something you've like encountered with anyone. Yeah. You, you know, yeah. I don't know if it's just like my family or. Um, no, it's a good yeah. point. And I think it's yeah. because of the inherently judgmental society that, you know, we um, that we not we maybe our family and mm -hmm. like the region upholds. Um, so a lot of times with metabolic disorders, if we were, mm -hmm. were to compare, I don't know, like uh, diabetes or cardiovascular complications to cancer um you know cancer 
one could argue that it's not something that you can control or right. or acquire uh, unless you like sit in the sun for 10 days straight and i, I don't know yeah. like it's it's it, compared to a metabolic disorder which which i mentioned earlier a lot of times it is you know um uh, a lot of factors that contribute to the onset of a metabolic disorder is through the you know your dietary choices your uh, you know, uh, sense or lack of activity. Um, so there is, I, I guess, stigma. I when with, and I, I would argue, um, at least from my experience, the stigma, unfortunately, it's it's more targeted towards um, women, at least yeah. cis women, older cis women that we like that could you know be our our moms basically that could are are much more targeted to this where if they gain weight or look a certain way or or have like high blood sugar that's crazy they're a terrible person make terrible life choices um but unfortunately it's it, there's a high prevalence of of these complications and not just because of your dietary choices environmental cues it's yeah. there's a genetic molecular aspect to it for example um if i don't know if you're familiar with nash um non-alcoholic steatohepatitis it's a form of fatty liver disease it's a it's a chronic more advanced stage of fatty liver disease yeah. and um in the region like in swana um the we have the highest rates of of nash wow. and nash is associated with an increased risk for type 2 diabetes so that plays into why mm -hmm. we also there's pretty much prevalence among among um uh not just with age but people in general who have diabetes high blood sugar um which then also is associated with cardiovascular uh, issues so that you know is related to high blood cholesterol uh, risks for stroke etc so there's there's a, a, a there's an increased likelihood of someone having a, some sort of metabolic complication in the region uh, statistically it's just it, it, it the stats are there um, right. but despite that there's still the risk for you know, being stigmatized about it and not being comforted or having it not normalized, but in the sense that it's okay, like this is this happens, this, you know, we have uh, breakthrough medicines, research, uh, maybe certain um, things we can do to try to curb these um, complications. But yeah, there is a, a stigma, I would say, if you were to compare uh, a chronic, um, you know, quote unquote, because again, it can be challenged lifestyle induced disorder to a, uh, a, a you know a, a illness like cancer um so the, there definitely is um stigma about it and if, if one's able to hide it they, they would um i would even say i mean this i don't think anyone would be surprised but even beyond that um acute infections are 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 even more stigmatized and, and frowned upon you know yeah. um, whether it's hiv or, or or something that you can acutely acquire but then obviously is, is with you for for life um, um that has even more stigma but i think the yeah. whole metabolic disorder category um because of the the reality of you could induce it yourself technically yeah. then it's on you technically which which is not the truth it shouldn't be but yeah right yeah right and also just like i think there's a shame in admitting okay i need I need help with something and like it's associated at least with Arab men my in my father's generation I just feel like there's this 
sense of like, oh, it's going to show weakness if I if I admit, you know, something's going yeah. on. And yeah, yeah, that's why yeah. mental health is a very challenging topic to bring up in the region. And yeah. it's 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 funny because you have people who are, um, you know, um, I don't want to say shaming, but it could be shaming you for mm-hmm. wanting to, you know, seek out um, help to you know, with your mental health or, or if, if someone, you know, is taking medication, seeing a therapist, etc. It's very much frowned upon. But then again, it's like, maybe you need it too. And maybe if we all yeah. are and, and, and are accepting to talk about our feelings and our mental health. And yeah, and I feel like it, it, it like, also spills into physical health, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, yeah there's, I don't know with my father and my uncles there's just this mentality of like admitting that you need physical like help for your physical health even is this display of weakness um so i don't know hopefully that you know, i mean changes over time i yeah i mean it took me like 10 years for me to find out my dad was diabetic before he told anyone wow no so, 10 years um, wow at least that's what that's what I'm willing I think he's willing to admit and yeah also maybe all this research can explain why literally everyone on both sides of my family has a vitamin D deficiency oh yeah (laughs) which is funny you think they wouldn't have exposure to sun more consistently than maybe we do yeah yeah that is I, I mean, I, I totally morally blame myself for being vitamin D deficient because of my my shutting lifestyle and whatnot. But <laughs> yeah. like, like my mom, she goes out in gardens, um, gets sunlight. Everyone else, you know, goes bikes, has athletic stuff. Vitamin D deficient. I just had my blood like last year. That was the thing I'm deficient in too. Oh, it's a, it's a trend. It could be, there could be a genetic, um, yeah. there's maybe a genetic aspect to why yeah, people interesting. deficient. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. Oh. We even have a form of sickle cell disease that is very common mm-hmm. among people from the Southern Mediterranean and the Levant, mm-hmm. uh, beta thalassemia, and it's a form of sickle cell uh, disease where your red blood cells are, you know, not as functional. Um, purely genetic so yeah could be wow wow that's yeah that's fascinating yeah you, you don't yeah there's no way to really like pinpoint that especially in the context of like yeah seeking medical care in the u.s you don't really get that um nuanced right. um kind of more nuanced like okay this is what the probable causes. Um, yeah. Whereas my oh, my white doctors were like, you you really should go spend some time in the sun and drink milk. I'm like, dude, I chug milkshakes all day. <laughs> but, you know, like he doesn't have that cultural context. And then even myself, I wasn't aware of it till like five years ago. So That's really I'm finding yeah. the show is making me find out things about myself. Wait, what's the show? This show, Us, oh. if oh. we're Arab. Oh, yeah, we are, yeah. I thought you were pointing to, like, a show you were watching. Oh. Yeah. 
Well, that's really cool. Do you want to um, talk any more? Like, is there anything else that you wanted to cover? Like, any anything else about, like, either your research or outside, you know, stuff that you're, you know, interested in science-wise? Sure. I, I think yeah. um, one, I, one nice thing maybe to talk about and mention is the fate of uh, research in the Arab world and then also the fate of, you know, um, the potential to have more queer Arab scientists, um, which so two different things, I guess. Um, uh, there was this talk I went to um, uh, like a month ago. Um, it's recorded now. It's it's it's, it's a nice um, nice talk, where the presenter was talking about um, um, women. This was a cis woman in um, research in the Arab world and um, a lot of surveys that were conducted in, in select countries and how there isn't a lack of representation in research but then when you class when you divide it into the different classifications like your investigators people who run the labs and then like students or postdocs or assistants that's when it changes and it's because a lot of times after your you know formal training you leave the field because now you have a PhD, you're maybe more desirable elsewhere, you go where you're maybe compensated fairly and have a better work-life balance. So a lot of times it, it, it weeds out and you still are, are at the same problem where you have these tenured professors who are, you know, really old white, cis white guys who, uh, who, you know, are taking advantage of their tenured position, but there's not much space for other, um, researchers to develop and grow and, and and i mean i'm facing the same problem like when i'm done with my phd do i stay in academia do i potentially open my own lab in the future that could you know focus on not just metabolic disorders but metabolic disorders that could disproportionately affect queer people in the region we don't know that but we could with with you know the potential for research and to fund this type of research but then i'm also thinking you know work-life balance a place where i could be you know, compensated more fairly, um, climb up the ladder more easily, you know, acquiring tenure is hard to begin with. And it's a, it's the whole politics that go into, you know, it, it, trying to thrive in research. So a lot of times I'm, I would assume the queer Arab scientists in training and not just Arab, but queer scientists in training in general, um, they're probably gonna leave the field once they get their PhDs, once they finish their fellowships. And they probably won't stay and try to get a professorship because it's hard to be in an environment where there aren't many people who look like you or who think like the way you do. Yeah. Um, you'd be shocked, even people in science who sh should be, you know, quote unquote progressive because science is a is a controversial take in the politics world, right? Like if people yeah. believe in science or not, shows where you lean. Yeah. But scientists themselves, influential scientists in the field, are still very old-fashioned and not necessarily the most progressive. So, yeah. um, I think the fate of will there be more representation in the future? It's uh, it's it's unknown, and it, it's likely that there could not be more representation because people are leaving. So, I think the yeah. classifying where they fall into is really important because you have many students now who come from different walks of life, but are they staying? No. And that's, that's a, I think, a, a big issue and, and scary, actually. And then research in the region, like in, in, the, um, in the Arab world, you know, um, that region, 
it's even more of a um, of a uh, scary situation in the sense that just research on its own, pure research, funding for research, opportunities for research, very few um, and far in between, you know, and I think it's more skewed to certain regions. Like now you have institutions that are becoming more research focused in the Gulf. You never had that in the past, but the Gulf now has the opportunity for that. But then you have places in the Levant that used to be power, you know, powerful uh, uh, contributors to research, especially science, that are, are are not so much anymore because of, you know, instability in the region. Um, and it sucks to see that. Um, so I think the fate of research in the region, it's, it's 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 weird because it's getting better in the Gulf, but I think in the Gulf there are limitations to what you can do um, research-wise, and that could potentially affect and alter the research that one is conducting, depending on what type of research you're doing. And then the Levant, as sad as it makes me, you know, being from the Levant, it's it's I don't see it getting better at least now, um, and I, I would hope because it of does. Economics. Yeah, because a lot of times it's not that there isn't a workforce or, or people who are qualified to do the research. So many qualified folks, but we just leave. We go somewhere else. So that's yeah. the big issue. People. Um, and here's the particularly nasty part of that feedback that I keep noticing is and in America, you're going to face some level of racism, especially from the older folks. And since it's so hard for somebody to get into like a leadership role at an academic institution, it may help drive people out and yeah. a few of the folks i know who do work in the field do make an active effort to reach out to at least arabs they're like hey like my <laughs> uncle who's who's like who basically reaches out for lebanese guy um doctors and for his program and he tries to nurture them because he knows sometimes they're not going to get that shot elsewhere yeah it's super important honestly like because of the world we live in having a network or using your connections taking advantage of the connections you have is super important it's unfortunate because not everyone is you know faced with the same consequences like oh not everyone has the network or the opportunities or you know the the it, it sucks but it, it, what i like to do which uh, most of the time it doesn't really work but at least i try a lot of my friends who i grew up with back home who who are in the field or seeking to enter the field i would send their cvs or resumes to you know, physicians or, or PIs that I know um, where I'm at um, or where I used to be in like Boston or my old job, would will they get the will they get the job right away because I sent their CV? No, but it's a it's a way to at least get your foot in the door. And I think it's it's a beautiful thing yeah, even huge. Yeah, with queer Arabs and in having a podcast like this where we're interviewing people in the arts in um, you know, uh, authors, uh, scientists, like you're creating a community where now you can reach out to someone who is in the field, has their foot in the door somewhat right. that could maybe help you or, or, or you know, um, give you the opportunity to enter the field too. So it's, it's great to have, you know, um, queer Arabs everywhere, you know, and it's nice yeah. because it's, yeah, it, it, yeah. Having each other's backs like that, yeah. Right. So uh, maybe I need to add a job board to the website. <laughs> Actually, we've had former podcast guests like meet each other through the podcast and then like and work together, which is really cool. Um, nice. So, yeah, that is definitely a thing. I mean, we have to none of us can really go at it alone. I think that's 
it is crucial for us to find connections at least connections at least with each other and um, help each other in any way we can in that way. Yeah. I think this is also very important for visibility because it's we are also you know um, we're put at a somewhat of a disadvantage in the U.S. because we're not recognized as a as a um, you know as a, um, a, a ethnic or racial group in the United States. So it's, yeah. it makes it hard to even find people, whether you know through a professional organization slash federal org that ha you know that that follows the federal guidelines of who fits what, um, who falls into what category. So having something like this puts visibility into, no, we're not a monolith with, you know, a, a whole other continent where we're our own people and within these peoples, we're even more than just one. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I keep forgetting about that classification working against us and in institutions that do want to play that stupid numbers game. Right. And I'll... Yeah. Now I'm sad again. No, no. Uh, well, no, but I, I hear you, Ellie. Um, anyway, so if, if people want to follow you online, do you have like a platform that you prefer people reach out to you? Sure. Um, I have a science Twitter, which is cool. So you'll be, I love that. Uh, I'm going to follow uh, you right now. I actually just, this was, I mean, great yeah. news for me. Um, like four days ago, um, I just got my first first author manuscript published. So um, ah. I'll be thinking about that. Um, oh, congratulations. That's thank amazing. you. Yeah. So okay. my Twitter, my science Twitter, I'm just looking up the username because I don't okay. have it. Yeah. Um, Tarek, T-A-R-I-K, uh -huh. underscore Zahar, Z-A-H-R. So Tarek Zahir, but like. Awesome. In, I'm following um, you right now. Awesome. And then I also have an Instagram, um, not a science Instagram. It's just a personal one. Um, it's it's cool. private, but I'm happy to make more queer friends, especially queer Arab friends. Awesome. Um, Adventures.of.tarik. Okay. So. Perfect. He's Thank a cutie. You. you should do it. <laughs> um, so you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Queer Arabs and email us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com. Mm -hmm.